Our complete library of episodes is available for free at spotlightonpodcast.com slash episodes. There you'll find all of our conversations stretching back to our launch in February of 2020. Check it out. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on multi-instrumentalist, composer, educator, and performer Brendan Gray of the Canadian hip-hop group Super Duty Tough Work. In addition to his duties as MC, drummer, and bandleader, Brendan has become a sought-after performance, session, and touring drummer. We spoke back in autumn of 2023 for a conversation that sticks with me still. I look forward to hearing what you think. I was a little worried that the clock struck 159 and I was I was listening to the new album and I was like, oh shit, I'm supposed to quick go do a mic check and, and dial into the Zoom. I got lost in it, man. What a great record. Wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. If I understand the, the band's history, it seems like you went a few years existing as a a live band and it took a minute to actually make a record. Yeah. First of all, I guess I'm curious what, what that was about. And then secondly, between 2019 and now, we've all been through a lot. And I wonder how that all shaped creatively, process-wise. How did the world impact you and your, your bandmates? As you said in the beginning, we were just a live act only. Essentially, we were playing our own, some shows, but mostly our own shows that we were throwing just to fill a gap in so we're based in, or the group is based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, Treaty Warren Territory. So the center of the continent. In the center of the hip hop universe, if I'm correct. Well, maybe <laughs> soon. You know, we're, we're, we're pushing in that direction. There you go. <laughs> but at the time, there definitely wasn't anything like we were, that we were doing on the scene. So we were just kind of filling this gap, playing as a live band, but playing hip hop. And it, the focus was really just providing a good live entertainment party atmosphere and experience for people. And we did that for a few years. And then, and I'm not even sure actually why, but we decided to kind of change focus slightly in that we wanted to start recording and releasing music. I guess we just felt we should grow our reach. It's hard to grow your reach if you're only something that people can experience in the flesh. Even though for us, like that's such a large part of what we do. That's really one of the places where people really understand kind of what we are doing. But yeah, if you're unable to be there, which is like the majority of the people in the world, it's hard for them to get on board and it's hard for you to grow as a band. So we started recording music and our first record came out in 2019. It was called Studies in Grey, our first EP. That was a fully independent release. No assistance, one video. It was very interesting to see the reception and what it did for us. We were lucky enough after almost a year of being out, essentially, that we were nominated for Polaris mm. Music Prize, which is pretty prestigious arts-based award. So essentially in Canada, there's two 
kind of main awards. There's the Junos, which would be like, like the closest equivalent to the Grammys. And then there's the Polaris. So the Junos is more based on sales and streams, but the Polaris prize is based, is supposedly based solely on artistic merit. But it doesn't matter if you have a million followers or 500, they supposedly go through 200 or so of the best albums released in Canada throughout the year. And then they narrow it down to 40, then they narrow it down to 10, and then they pick a winner. The winner was just announced a few days ago for this year, as a matter of fact. So we were lucky enough to be nominated for our record in 2019, and that helped us quite a lot, frankly. And then, yeah, we were trying to do some things, but then, you know, the world was changing and we're all experiencing these things. So that kind of slowed us down right when we seemed to be gaining some speed. But yeah, now we're back. We're full speed ahead, it seems. Were you ever given a peek behind the process for the Polaris? Like, do you know how you got on the radar screen or who was championing you? I'm not 100% sure, but you have to be nominated. And they have a committee of like, I don't know, 200 or 300 music industry personnel that are on, from what I understand, a large committee. So they all have to listen to all of these records and then they all vote on them and lobby for them. I'm not sure how the committee size is affected from the 200 to the 10, but I know once it gets to the 10, there's only 11 members on that committee. Wow. And then they're all essentially lobbying for one record. And then there's like a jury hand person. And then, yeah, they choose amongst those. And so I do know that we were nominated by a, a journalist that had done an interview or wrote a piece about us yeah at some point when the record came out that they were the ones that it came to me through the grapevine that they were the ones that had nominated us in my sort of obvious and obnoxious joke about the geography of of where y'all are from i'm curious how did you guys find each other could you give any insight into the decision to be a band as opposed to something more production driven which was, you know, an equally and maybe even a more prominent paradigm in, in hip hop. I know a little bit about your background as a drummer and that so live instrumentation may be having some meaning for you, but really curious, especially given the size of your crew, like it's not like it's a four piece, like you had to find some people. So I'm originally Shen. I was born in Ottawa, Ontario, which is the capital of Canada in the East. Uh, and I grew up in Europe in my formative years. So I have lots of family in Winnipeg and that's where I moved essentially a year or so after I graduated high school to go to university. And I've been playing music, like a country musical family. I've been playing music most of my life in some capacity or another. When I was living in Germany, I was playing drums mainly in bands and had in one main band and we really thought we were gonna do something. So when I moved to Canada, I made a conscious decision to focus more on rapping because it was something I didn't need other people to do so much. I felt like it was more on me. Like I wrote, wrote the lyrics myself and then just played some beats and et cetera. Anyway, after doing that, like on my own for a bit with other people a little bit, I had been part of another through called Sweeping Giants. And that was like kind of short lived. What's funny, we, we didn't really release quite a lot of music at all, but we released one music video, but that had such a huge impact in the scene, at least, 
that people still refer that to me all the time and want to talk about that and ask about that. And the recorded music was production, but when we were playing shows, we would sometimes be using live instruments. I've always been, as a musician, really into the live instrument aspect, but it was always really important to me that it sounds like production. It's one thing to have a band, but I prefer when you can't tell that it's a band, that it, you know, it sounds like it was made like any other hip-hop beat on like an MPC or any kind of drum machine. At that point, when Sleeping Giants came to an end, I wasn't ready to, to stop doing music, really. And I had this name, Super Duty Tough Work, on the back burner. And I just started trying to find musicians that I thought would be able to shape the vibe and do what was needed. That was also at the time when I was about to go back to school and start a jazz studies program. Mm. And that is where I came into contact with a lot of the people that we're in kind of the first formation of the band. And now also, but we've gone through a few different personnel changes because there is a stigma around kind of jazz school students that just go and start playing hip hop and that sort of thing. A cliche. I'm not so worried about that for myself because I have such deep ties to hip hop before I was in school. And then so do a lot of the people that are in the band now. I say that to say, I was trying to find players out that weren't in the school to be in the band at first, but it just wasn't working out, frankly. They didn't have the ear to understand the nuance, the nuances that are involved when it comes to playing hip-hop. There's another idea amongst a certain group of people, I suppose, that hip-hop is easy to play, but the truth is that it's not easy at all. It can be very hard. There's very particular rhythms, there's very particular chords, if you don't have the ear to be able to discern one from the other, then it's not going to sound right. So when I went back to school, that's where I met a lot of people. And that's where we started to things together. I knew it was going to be like that. Like I was looking for people like the year prior. And I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to be going to school. I know there's going to be people there that are able to do what I need. So I'm not going to stress about it too much. And I'm just going to wait till I go there. And then, you know, I just went and met a whole new community of musicians, and then just started building with the ones that I felt were the most fitting. Interesting that you wanted to make music with live musicians that, that maintain some of that production sort of sonic or quality. Yeah. I would think that puts a lot of the pressure on you as the drummer. You got to be in the pocket. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I had to make a decision, essentially. Like, this was the group that I would love to play drums in. But as the front person, I can't do both. And that was hard. And we honestly tried to, like just a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, we had to do a show. The drummer had to pulled out at the very last minute. And we actually played the first show where I had to drum and rap at the same time. Ooh. Which I knew I could do, but I just don't like to do because I refer to it as a circus act. People do respond to that. It, there's this clash of people are always like, oh, wow, you should do that more. That was great. But I'm just like, I don't really want to. But you're right. The, like Finding the right drummer was a chore and hard. And in Winnipeg, it's not a huge city. It's not London or New York or where there's like lots of musicians. And you can just find a person like that. So you don't drum on the records? Oh, on the record? Yeah, a little bit. I'd say it's 50-50. It's I play drums on some songs. 
a drum where Kevin Waters played drums on others. Sometimes we play both. We play on top of each other. And then sometimes there's a little bit of production layered on top of there also. Yeah, I want the record to be also a reflection of the live show, but also like everyone needs to be involved because everyone has been involved, right? So it wouldn't make sense for me to just be the only drummer on the record. Like Kev has been, has been part of the group for like years and he's like so crucial that he's got to be on there too. Yeah. That alone gives a lot of insight into some other things I wanted to ask you about. It does sound like it's a true group, although you've been a bit of the initial driving force and you're the lyricist, you all aren't treating each other as just tools to be used. Like you're, you're a group. Yeah. We're a group and we're friends. Some of the people I've known for years, we've played together in other bands where I was the drummer and they were another musician under someone else's leadership, or they've led their own band and I've played with them. So we've all worked together in different capacities for years. We've known each other, some of us for years, others not so long, but like generally at this point, years, like we have a good working relationship and a good friendship. So I think that is one element that's like really important because everyone kind of trusts each other and when you're like trying to make music and make honest music like that is important. Are you a musician yourself at all? Or? I, I, generously. <laughs> that would be a generous term. <laughs> I've played piano since I was a little kid and I, I play around with electronic music on my own, but I don't. You're not playing out that much. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't, okay. it's not, it's, it's for me. Okay. That's not a bad place to be because sometimes when you're playing with people and maybe you don't know, or maybe whatever, musicians have real ego problems. You might feel like, oh, I have to play my best with this person because we all feel they're so good or they feel they're so good. Or there's all these strange dynamics that come into play, but that is not the case in this group. And that I think is, that's a really positive aspect. By the stove, what's in the soup? Top boy taught you that slang, we've been half food. I'm sowing these seeds to eat this fruit. They bake for bars, all I can do is sing in the blues. My style's like Lauren, me slangs to use. Power from the vastness and beauty that's in these hues. Infiltrators hidden among us, you might get duped. I just kick my truth and let it do what it do. No pursuit's trivial, that's a clue. Birds eye bumping, big picture, now that's a view. They misguided, adding abuse. Lukewarm trends, I slang damage on loops. Exude quiet strength with my loops, hanging the Louvre. Monday on the Metro and Tuesday I'm on the tube. Like Paris to London, we get it blunted. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you were carrying around the band name. And is there a story? Because it is, it's a very unique, interesting name. Before you made that comment, I was going to ask you like, what the tough work is. I guess I'm interested just all around about the name and the fact that you were sitting with it for a minute is also interesting to me. 
The name comes from a movie, a documentary movie called Star Wars, which came out in 1984, uh, I believe directed mainly by a man named Henry Shelfant. And it essentially chronicles a certain period in the early 80s in New York, the early days of the hip hop movement, essentially. It's really, it's mostly about graffiti, mostly about graffiti writers in New York. They do talk a little bit about breakdancing and DJing and MCing. And it's kind of a, a cult classic movie and like a Bible of sorts to many. I'm one of them. Now, some people dispute some of the stories told and love shown to different characters in this documentary. They say some of the people, they make them out to be bigger players than they were and they left some people out, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's neither here nor there. But that's where the name comes from because in the documentary, there's a, a graffiti writer named Chase Two who has passed away. And he's kind of one of the foundational early graffiti writers from New York and who's credited with pushing the art to new levels. He had very technical, hard to read letters and styles and works. And that's essentially what he's talking about. There's a scene where he's talking, because in, in graffiti, like similar to rap, it's important to have many different styles. So you're not just always doing the same thing over and over. Or you like just like breakdance or any kind of that, you know, different moves. You have a, you're supposed to have a big bag of tricks. Same with any musician, different lick or your fills or whatever. Like you can't just play the same thing over and over. So he's talking about all of the styles that he had and how it's hard to read and how all these things. So he makes this one comment. Like I have, you know, styles already that nobody's heard about. I'm talking super duty, tough work. Great line. It's classic. And it turns up people in hip hop, like take samples from it. And they, and he refers to himself as the king of style. There's like a very known quote he's like the king of what the king of style which is reused over and over but yeah that's where the name came from i don't know when because that that's a movie that i watched hundreds of times over the years like i don't remember when i thought oh that's a good band i think i actually wrote it down and i had it written on a piece of paper and i was like oh that's that's a good band name honestly i actually had a vision of what that band would be close to it but I was thinking more of an instrumental band, honestly, like less vocals and more just kind of like avant-garde beat with a hint of jazz, I guess. Interesting. I want to hear that band. <laughs> well, you know what? We have some instrumental tracks on the back burner. So maybe, maybe. maybe when the, deluxe, the yeah. deluxe record comes, you might hear a piece of that. There you go. The other thing I wanted to ask you about as it relates to names is what's the story behind your name? Because I see you in the press under your given name, as well as under the name you work under. It seems like the key word is gray. It's in the album title. It's in one of the tracks on the new record. And I'm curious what that's about. Okay. I'll try to make this as concise and short as possible, but Many years ago, I wanted to be in like, not just rhyming, but also dabbling in the graffiti world. I wasn't very good. It didn't last very long. That was the end of it. But in that world, I was inspired by another writer whose name was Nov York, N-O-V-Y-O-R-K. Like having those two names 
was very rare, frankly. Usually in graffiti, it's just like one one word. So like I was inspired by that. So I was thinking of what names I could use. And somehow I came up with Malcolm Gray, inspired by Malcolm X. But then also in French, if you, the word Malgré means despite. Despite all the efforts, it still didn't happen or something like that. So I just split it up into Malgré, M-A-L. G-R-E-Y. I had other rap names in Sleeping Giants. One of my partners, his name's Nario. That's his real name, but also his, his stage name. And I like that fact as I was getting older, just was seeming using these monikers. It wasn't fitting. It didn't feel mature, I think. So I, I wanted to use my own name, but I didn't feel that my full given name really had the best ring to it. Originally, it went from Mal Gray to Ambassador Gray to B Gray, and now it's just Brendan. And yeah, but again, I've put a lot of emphasis on just using the name Super Duty Tough Work, even though, yes, we are talking. But I was also inspired by Kurt Cobain, who on Nirvana Records and stuff, he would always misspell his name or use different names or stuff like that, which I thought was like an interesting way to go about things. There's an element of that also. Like, you know, the name's not really important, frankly. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like the music is what's important. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Other than the podcast itself, the best way to stay in touch with our various goings-on is to be on our mailing list. To sign up, go to spotlightonpodcast.com and click on Newsletter. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. So let's talk about the music a little bit, um, or a lot bit. Some of the themes that jump out, not even that are that come out, but that jump out when reading about you all and listening to the lyrics and hearing other things you've said in other places. Things like resistance, liberation. And I can only imagine how some of those themes have become more important to express in the last few years. One of the things that I, I read, I want to make sure I paraphrase it closely enough, was that something along the lines of liberation through hedonism. Right. Hearing you talk about like the origins of the band and putting on your own shows and something that hip hop does so well of like, we could have a party, but we could say something. I'm struggling to ask you a specific question and it's more, I, I kind of want to sit with you in that, in, in those themes and just what those themes mean to you. And the difference between a party record and a record that has something to say when they're different and when they're actually, when they can be the same thing. Again, hip hop is like the perfect form to have both of those things at the same time. Yeah. Could you just talk to me a little bit about the importance and the, the meaning of this stuff for you? Yeah. Yeah. Where to start. So in my understanding of hip hop and the culture that surrounds it, whether it's overt or covert, there really is always the social commentary aspect involved. And sometimes it's really at the forefront and in your face, and other times it's less, but it's still there. And even when you might not think it's there, you might be thinking you're listening to a record about partying or whatever. Even that can be a commentary in itself. That is always present in, in what we do. And I think that's just following in line with the tradition. I do perhaps take a slightly more at times 
overt approach to trying to get some message across. And that's where the liberation through hedonism kind of tag comes in because as far as I understand, at least there is a stigma attached sometimes to, at least in hip hop, to like political raps or raps and have a message or something. Or even though like, if you go back to, you know, the message, like Grandmaster Flash, like that was like, if someone said, what's the best hip hop song of all time? I'd say that's it. But talking about politics or whatever, like sometimes it's viewed as whack or corny or uninteresting or not fun. Not fun is one of the key elements to that. So with this record in particular, one of the goals was that we wanted to have some heavy subject matter, but also have it be fun. Not just be like heavy and depressing and hard to listen to, not pleasing to the ear. Like we wanted to tackle these themes as we always do, but have it be like sonically pleasing and fun and something that almost like, I don't know, radical pop music or something. Yeah. I don't know if that's what was accomplished, but that was something that I had in mind when we were making the record. It's like I said, heavy stuff, serious stuff at times, but still fun. I like to think sometimes it's quite witty. There is some quite a lot of humor and I hope musically there's some things that like people can dance to and have fun to. There's a section on the record that jarred me in a good way, but made me pay attention. And that was Guillotine Dreams. Okay. And I'm, I'm listening to the song and hearing it. But the end segment where the woman's talking and she makes the comment about basically the rich people that don't give a fuck about anybody else. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing her, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to the guillotine, basically, she said. And then her laugh afterwards was like, the way it was cut and the tone of her laugh, it's so hard to get the meaning, right? Like, is she laughing at herself that she said that out loud? Is she laughing because she's nervous she said it? Is she laughing that it's like a cackle? Like, it's it's so ambiguous. That moment has really stuck with me. I really, I really like that moment a lot. Thank you. That's Kimberly Foster. She's a cultural critic and academic. She runs a platform called For Harriet. I think that she's very smart. So yeah, like it's funny, that isn't even from any of her own content. That was from an interview that she was doing on someone else's platform that I was listening to. And I, but I just thought it was so perfect. And also the laugh, like the laugh to me is like part of that fun. It's like funny. It's serious, but funny. You know, the dead serious, but also I love that quote also. That, that sample. So to sit here on the south side of the border between our countries, I'm constantly reminded, like as an American, how inward we're constantly looking down here, right? Like mm-hmm. I think of myself as someone with a curiosity and I, and I have a lot of experience traveling and I listen to all kinds of music, but I still get confronted with the, like the American mindset, I guess I'd call it. And okay. it doesn't always feel good, right? But one of the things that struck me was that listening to the record, I, I just say it more directly. I didn't realize that the extent to which police killings were a problem in Canada, Mm. because we're told it's such a uniquely American phenomenon. So when I started to read about it and the crazy thing was 
There's a Wikipedia page about police killings in Canada. And it's basically just a list of names and dates and circumstances. It looked really American when you read the people's names or you read the circumstances. And I don't know what the question is that I have around that. And I and it was only been in the last couple of hours that I've been sitting with it. Does it surprise you that I didn't know? No. I'm currently in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and I've been here on and off for a while. And I, even before that, when I was in, in Germany, I went to an American military school for a year and grew up with many American friends and classmates and families on different military bases or visiting different military bases for different reasons. And even in Canada, not to speak too disparagingly of you all, but you don't have the best reputation in the world for being super knowledgeable of what's happening outside of your country. So I'm not really that surprised. And even where I am now, I'm surrounded by some incredibly smart people. Their reference points are very localized. And yeah, but that just is what it is. That, that is what it is. I don't know that it's frankly that different in Canada. Like the thing is the world is consuming American media, whether it's music, television, movies. We, we have been and still are largely consuming stuff that's being exported from, from the U.S. I don't think that you're consuming stuff from outside the world in the same action. So I think that's just where the, the main difference lays that you guys are exporting the culture. We're taking in the American culture in a, in a way that you're not always taking in from outside. So yeah, I'm not that surprised. I'm, but I'm not, I'm not offended either. It's not, I don't think it's, it's not like, how could you not know this? Like, it's just not things are set up. How is the subject treated in Canada? I think if you, you just mentioned you, you spend a fair amount of time here, you have friends here, you've traveled. I'm sure you know how fraught it is here and the different battle lines and just all the, all the shit that's in the air. Yeah. I wonder what's the dialogue like in Canada? Like are people facing it? Is there hope? Is it hopeless? Is it desperate? Is it cruel? Man, that, I mean, I'm not even sure. Honestly, yeah. I don't know how it was in the States prior to, let's say, summer of 2020. But it seems that with the murder of George Floyd and that whole the summer that followed that, in theory, there was like a shift in consciousness globally, frankly. I feel that the U.S., it's a beast of its own, especially when it comes to these systems and police violence and police murders. In Canada, there was also a public shift, I would say, and quite cynical. So when everything was going down, and by everything I mean, when there, there seemed to be the shift and everyone was making statements and making their everything known about their feelings and all this stuff and like trying to show support and allyship supposedly and all these things, I didn't feel that it was going to be sustained. So I thought that it was very like, surface level self-serving and just disingenuous. So now three years later, I think there's still people that are trying to lead the fight, but I feel also that my initial feelings were correct and that it was just 
cause du jour. Unfortunately, we've seen some change for the worse even. Like in, in the city of Winnipeg, for example, just to give some context, like when Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, there was a rally at, in the city of Winnipeg at the legislative building where there was less than 500 people there, okay? Whatever that was, 2016 or something. Summer of 2020, there was a rally and there was like over, there was 20,000 people that came to the same place. The next week, there was a rally for a indigenous teenager, a child, Aisha Hudson, who was murdered in Winnipeg by the police. There was like a thousand people there. So, you know, that to me highlights a disconnect even in the understanding of people who are supposedly like engaged and wanting to show support and maybe advocate for change because it's great that there's 20,000 people showing up, but there should also be 20,000 people showing up when the murder is happening in our city. You know what I mean? These things are still happening. And what I was getting at is that you have all the support within the city, lots of advocates, community groups, and yet the city council still voted to increase the police budget instead of reallocating funds. I'm not really a fan of the defund slogan. I think it sends the wrong message. But what we want, we do want to reallocate funds and redistribute resources. So even amidst all of the supposed public outcry, you find in our, in our city, at least when it came down to it, they chose to give more money to the police. It didn't just happen in Winnipeg. It seems so reactionary, doesn't it? Like if you're going to say defund, I'm going to increase the funding. There you go. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I, I so wished it was demilitarized because that, that would have spoken much more directly to the, a big part of the problem is like, why do some police forces have tanks? Right. Does she, like, when I'm talking about consuming American media outside of the U.S., we're watching what's happening in the, in the U.S., even though we, people want to deny it, but we're influenced so much by movies and television and stuff. We're watching the same stuff the police are, and they see what's happening in the U.S., and they want that to happen in Canada also. You know, so they, they, the police, want more tanks and helicopters. As always, they always make the same argument, like more training, more resources, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to change the way that they act. All of the data, all of the research, whether it's the most recent data or Stretching back for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's all the same, points to the fact that more money, more training, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't actually have the effect that we're claiming we want it to have. More training, more money doesn't change the amount of killing. It doesn't change the negative interactions that people have in their communities with police officers. That to me is, is like the most hardest pill to swallow is that in the face of, of however many years of scholarly research by people who have, who have devoted their lives to studying these issues are, and just speaking about Winnipeg now, but our city council just like, uh, no, no, we don't trust the, the experts, you know. But there's a lot of that to go around these days. Just do your own research, man. There you go, man. You, a YouTube video and we're all experts. Yeah. 
only thing I say is checkmate. Microphone check like a shotgun blast to your breastplate. My whole team, nothing but chefs, hooking up fresh plates. Soon to be top five, that's without the middle or self hate. Raps tighter than fresh braids, the drums crispy. Still, I'm Damon Wayne's face and Thomas Dunn Witties. Kids with literal children thinking they puffing biggie. This that John one dirty hands for hardcore strictly like chill. You should be embarrassed. Work ethic that's simple and careless. While we put in working like a single parent, it's a parent fuckers can't compare with. The art that I'm pumping is carrots, terror charges, portage after Paris. Lay back and cherish while I'm feeding them hits. Splitting these pigs, season save me with the season to sit. I'm breathing these splits and beating these skins. Opposition till I pass away. Killed by my friends like Jam Master J. It makes sense, some rather see me for the magistrate. Instead, I stand on stage, I don't lie, fib or exaggerate. What I stand for speaks for itself. No need to fabricate and face stats or lie in my bio. Yo, can you say the same? They're trying to find a better way. They about to cause Berlin based on the way I take your breath away. I never say die, just be like, ah, I keep them pressing place. So they bump the studies like it came out yesterday. One of the other things that I read, I, I don't recall if it was something you said or if it was in some of the material, but it was basically once we realized we're all fighting the same thing was the line yeah. that stood out for me. That to me manifests when I see a young cop in the face of a black kid screaming or a black cop screaming at a black man or a black woman or a white cop and going into a poor white neighborhood. It's like the masterful job that's been done is to convince people that they're not all afflicted by the same system. I don't say that at all to imply that race is irrelevant in this conversation or not the most important thing. Like I'm very well aware of the disgusting history around race in this country, but the way class identity has been manipulated on people and sort of taken out of the conversation so that people think it's about race so that's how I read that sentence. Maybe that's not what, what it was intended, but that's what the last several years have done for me is that's where the majority would be if everybody just could realize that, that it's a very, very small minority. And it's reflected in all kinds of shit. Like I keep hearing this stat ringing in my head that something like eight or 10 men control like over 50% of the wealth in the world. And that's just, an, that's an egregious one. It's just so painfully clear. It's this clinically obsessive and demented obsession with accumulation of <laughs> of resources. And like, if you have anything, it means I have a little less. It's insanity. Yeah. But that's the function of, of white supremacy is to keep, especially the, the white working class, separated from other oppressed, marginalized people. And the police... They're just the working class foot soldiers for the elite, which is sad because they have more in common with other marginalized groups than they do with the elite, right? One of the many goals in our music is to draw parallels between, I'll say, liberation movements or struggles with the goal of hopefully seeing where our experiences overlap and then realizing that we... We need to work together a bit more. The people that I look to, like Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, even Martin Luther King to a certain extent, like when they were on that internationalist path is when I think they were really considered the most threatening. Yeah, I think that's because right. Because that is where the threat stems from. If we're separated, there is no threat. But if we're banding together, 
then it could be a wrap if we choose. But we're not there yet. It's interesting because I've heard a lot of talk recently about that's what the right is really good at, is that the right is actually an internationalist movement now. These more fascist-leaning and right-wing agitators, leaders, whatever you want to call them, they all work with their counterparts in other countries and often quite literally work on payroll and consulting. And it's an international movement that, that the left really has ever struggled to keep momentum with and to keep those connections with. I'm curious, in terms of the band's career, is there a, a, a version of success that would exist solely within Canadian borders? Like, could you maintain a career as a Canadian concern? Putting aside ambition, I guess I'm, I'm curious about the difference, the different ways you would define success. Because clearly, like you made a wonderful record, you're successful. But what's success for you? First and foremost, what's important to me is making a valuable contribution to the canon of hip hop and the broader music culture, I guess. That's what's important to me. One of the things. Success, I think it's different for everyone. Obviously, you, you want to be able to make a living off, a, a decent living off of your work. And to some extent, I would say be recognized by your peers, which could be contemporary people or people that you know the pillars of these movements. So I think all of those things play a role. And to come back to the first half of that question, it's definitely tough to specifically be a hip hop artist in Canada. Canada is a very large landmass with a lot of, it's not like the states where there's big cities that are closer together. You know, it's not like that at all. Like from where we are, Winnipeg from central Canada to the next big city, essentially Toronto, it's like a 24 hour drive. Great. You have to take multiple days to make that drive. That makes it hard for touring, for example. Beyond that, there's not even that many major cities in Canada. Like in the States, there's like tons. You could do a tour just in California or something. You know what I mean? It's not like that in Canada at all. The critical mass isn't there to support in that way for, for a group like ours. So that makes it difficult. That leads us to try to explore markets elsewhere, essentially. Like we've been having some pretty good successes in the UK. So we've been making return trips out there. The U.S. has been a market that we would like to break into. But again, it's, it's really hard because there's so many other acts trying to break in also. First, you have all the acts in the U.S., American bands. Then you have everyone else in the whole world that also wants to come here as well and do that thing. It's tough. Like, I, I wouldn't say that we have been trying to break in yet. It's just been something that it's on our list and it just takes good planning and then a good team or good team members in the U.S. kind of help you and then doing things at the right time. So the, the consensus is it hasn't been the right time to start spending money. For example, if we wanted to come tour here, we have to get visas for each person or we actually have some American members, so they wouldn't need a visa, but everyone else would. 
and the price of vehicles for musicians and artists and stuff recently went up. That makes it even harder because it's quite a lot. So it hasn't been made easier. So all those things make it hard to break into the U.S., which in talking about success, like for better or for worse. And I, I did earlier, I hope I didn't come across as speaking negatively about Americans. That was not my intent in any way, shape or form. But it is funny how like, even in the world, whether you're in Canada or in Europe, a musician and artist, their idea of success or making it big is coming to the U.S. And you can be like in Europe, in England, in Germany, wherever, like, when I was living in Germany, it was like the George Bush era. Everyone wanted to talk to me. They hear my voice, they think I'm American, and they want to talk about American politics. And they want to just, just like shit on George Bush and all of that. But then they want to go to the U.S. Then it's, my dream is to go to New York. And it's still very much like that. Even in Canada, people are always like, oh, you should move to Toronto. You should move to Toronto because that's where the center of industry is. I see people that are in Toronto doing essentially the, the same thing or similar things to what I'm doing in Winnipeg and they essentially just want to go to LA. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's a whole lot of stuff. So what now? You've got this great record out. You've got a large band. Do you gig for a while? Do you start recording again? What's the emerging pattern for you? You know, we're figuring that out. Essentially lining up shows for 2024 We've yet to have our essentially record release party in Winnipeg in our hometown. So we're, we've got that. We're in the midst of planning that. And then we're essentially just trying to book shows for 2024. We're really trying to expand in international markets. So like some of the European countries, Asia. We've been invited to the South by Southwest a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It just it financially was not making sense for us to try and bring everyone down there. So I don't know if that's going to be on the books again in 2024. But yeah, writing, right, definitely writing new material. So preparing, starting to prepare. When we released our first record, we just released it and it took us four years to follow up with anything. So I don't want to take the same approach this time. Like I said before, we had these instrumental tracks, which are more like, almost drum and bass kind of music. So those might come out. We might do an instrumental release, maybe some remix of this last record. Something that keeps some momentum. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Get as much out of this body of work as we can before moving on to the next cycle. You can hear the drum and bass in your, the influence and, and your experience with drum and bass. You can hear it in these tracks. It's, uh, it's Beautiful. definitely there. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad. That was definitely like, on this record, we, for the first time, worked with a producer named Junior T from Toronto. So he came out to Winnipeg and we just got locked in the studio for like a week and a half. That would be kind of our morning warm-up routine. Generally, staying up late, or I'm, a, I'm like a night owl myself, so I'm going to bed very late. Waking up super early, being really tired, just going straight to the studio and just like going in the studio and pressing recording. We just play drum and bass for like an hour or something. So that was like the warm-up, fun, get loose kind of routine. And some of it, funnily enough, made its way out to the record. And some of it is in the bank. And yeah, we'll see. Maybe our next project's going to be just completely different from the last one. You know? Yeah. Thanks for making so much time. And uh, 
for having this conversation. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your interest. Yeah, I love the record, man. I really do. And I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, Lawrence. Thank you so much, Brendan Gray. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you would like to support our work, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you will find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.